Welcome to Talks at Advent, homilies and reflections given at the Church of the Advent, a Western Rite Orthodox mission in Atlanta, Georgia. Today's speaker is Dr. Bo Bruce. There's so much to talk about in this brief account that I will unfortunately need to focus today on only a small amount of the richness of this brief account found in the 20th chapter of St. John the Theologian's Gospel. The key part that I'm going to focus on of what happened that very evening of Jesus' resurrection, the tomb had just been found empty just a few hours before, and Jesus appears to his disciples behind locked doors with his resurrected body bearing the marks of his passion. And Jesus says, Peace be with you. And as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said unto them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Fifty days from Easter, we celebrate Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit was poured out in a dramatic fashion on the disciples and a whole host of others visiting from around the world for that key religious festival. Yet here in a locked room, just after the resurrection, Ten of the disciples experience a mini Pentecost. There's no rushing wind, no tongues of fire, just the breath of Jesus, which is another way we see his body as physical. It's not just a spiritual body, it breathes. What's the meaning of this breathing upon the disciples? In the Bible, we can easily discern that breath is life. God gave breath to the animals, and Genesis specifically says that God himself breathed into Adam's nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. So here we see another act of the creation of man. Indeed, Jesus has just said, hey, the gang's all here, as the Father has sent me, so even I, the Son, am sending you receive the Holy Spirit. Just as we see God revealed in his three, its threeness, at the very moment of creation, we again see a Trinitarian revelation here during what appears to be a revivification of man by Jesus. We see that God is breathing again into the nostrils of dead men to give them life again, right after the accomplishments of his death and resurrection. And what makes them dead? Sin. We all know Paul says that the wages of sin is death. Why? Because sin separates us from God, and without the life of God, we are dead. Indeed, without that life, we are the walking dead. But instead of being undead zombies, we're some sort of Frankenstein's monster appearing to be alive, but really being dead. We're unalive monsters. And this reminds me vividly of one of my favorite quotes from Jesse Trotter. The glory of God is a person fully alive. So wrote Irenaeus in the second century. Yet look about you. How many people seem to be busily contriving to stay half well, half alive? So we overwork, oversmoke, overeat, and overdrink. So it appears we're trying to avoid this inner freedom by running away forward into work, backwards into tranquilizers, upward into fantasy, downward into depression, sideways into evasion and avoidance, all to avoid the wholeness for which something else in us so hungrily longs. It's the end of the quote. 
So how can we stop running and start living? And Jesus establishes that answer right here. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it's withheld. Here, Jesus establishes a way for us to set free from sin by giving God's power to forgive sins to his faithful disciples. Recall that Jesus' forgiving others of their sins was considered blasphemous because God alone had the power to forgive sins. And this was part of Jesus' own declaration that he himself was divine. And yet here, Jesus pours a special portion of his Holy Spirit upon his disciples, bestowing them the very power of God as his deputies. We see one of the key ways that this is one of those key ways that the disciples are given power to act as God, to be his deputy. And the very, and that wasn't the very, it wasn't that the first power was miracles. It wasn't physical healings. It wasn't baptizing. It wasn't consecrating the Eucharist. No, it was the power to forgive sins. Why was that? Because having your sins forgiven is a prerequisite to all the other things. Without forgiveness of sins, we can't even approach God to receive the rest. And we will see the disciples exercise this very gift on the day of Pentecost. And here's what Peter says in Acts 2. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will then receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. They didn't get the Holy Spirit first and then get their sins forgiven. They got forgiven, and then they got the Holy Spirit. Now, talking about sin in church is often up there in popularity with stewardship sermons. We really like to run all of our other directions to avoid what we must do, which is run inside. We need to run inside ourselves, but we don't run inside ourselves just to stay there. Instead, we run inside to bring out all the dark creatures in there that cannot stand the light of God, bring them out into that light to be destroyed. And even this introspection is a community process in orthodoxy. Orthodoxy has always said that the sign that someone is on the right track in the spiritual life is the ability to share with someone else. Now, we also say that somebody else isn't just anybody. Spiritual directors have taken various forms throughout the history of orthodoxy, reaching a sort of pinnacle in the elder, who was a man or woman who provided spiritual direction. And this was a critical but separate function from the sacramental confession and absolution. And today, these tend to be linked together in the same sacramental rite. Today, it's likely that your parish priest, as it is for us, is also your spiritual director. But capable spiritual directors are something we need more of in orthodoxy. Because sacramental confession is primarily retrospective, whereas spiritual direction is something preventative, even teleological, by helping us reveal the thoughts that will lead us to sin if we don't correct them. And we can best understand this by a deeper understanding of repentance. Bishop Callistos Ware observes that repentance is normally understood as sorrow for sin, a feeling of guilt, a sense of grief, as the wounds we have inflicted on others and ourselves. Yet he says this is neither the complete picture nor the most important aspect of repentance. Instead, he says that we must focus on the literal meaning of the Greek term for repentance, metanoia, which means a change of mind. It's not just regret for the past, but a fundamental transformation of our outlook, a new way of looking at ourselves, at others, and at God. And in fact, if we dwell on our grief and sorrow, we can fall into despair, even despondency, believing that there's nothing we can do. This is the devil's greatest asset. 
St. John Climacus says, Metanoia is the daughter of hope and the denial of despair. St. John Chrysostom says, be ashamed with you when you sin. Don't be ashamed when you repent. Sin is the wound. Repentance is the medicine. Sin is followed by shame. Repentance is followed by boldness. Satan has overturned this order and given boldness to sin and shame to repentance. We have to be bold in our repentance. That is, we have to show up at the Father's feet as the prodigal. As St. John Chrysostom says, Satan's fooled us into being ashamed of repentance instead of being ashamed of our sin. And repentance is not simply being sorrowful. It's changing our direction. It's running in another direction. It's aligning ourselves with God. The sorrow and the grief are the beginning, not the end. Indeed, we must not wallow in our grief, but overcome it through this transformation of our being into a life filled and fulfilled by a restoration to the potential of God's grace through sacramental absolution, our restoration to the body of Christ, where we can continue our transformation into a more and more God-like state via theosis. Because theosis is our end. And therefore, spiritual direction is a never-ending process. Because God himself cannot be exhausted and there must always be more to him. So even if we overcame all of our sin and became as perfect as a human being could be, God would still be greater. What does spiritual direction do for us? It serves the purpose of giving us someone to unveil and shine a light on our logismoi. That's a word we often use for the thoughts that begin to draw us away from God and towards sinful behavior. This light is shown upon our thoughts not to create guilt, because we all have these thoughts, but to destroy them before they do us real harm. And more importantly, we need that independent light shining upon these thoughts because they often, often become so intense that they can become delusions. We begin to believe that those thoughts are real. And as unalive monsters, we begin to live in a dead world. Someone else helps us question and evaluate those thoughts. We know many of our faults, but what are our most dangerous faults? They're those that we don't even see because we're blind and deluded. And this is why we need to be talking to others on our journey. Spiritual direction is a necessary part of the Christian life. Father Joseph Allen notes that wholeness and holiness are derived from the same Greek word. And the East assumes our linkage to God is natural, that we need to reconcile with God by removing all those foreign paths that are keeping us from the open natural path, the inner way which leads to God. Now, this, this natural path is not an easy road. Uh, one of my favorite uh, images of spiritual direction is the compost heap. You gather the weeds, the leaves, the vegetable, fruit, peelings, and even some manure if possible. And with diligent work, digging, probing, and turning over of those ingredients, it becomes rich, dark earth that we can grow closer to God in. And so in this passage, we... Today, in today's gospel, we see the establishment by Christ himself on the day of his resurrection through a special outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon his disciples, a way for us all to have life, breath, put back in our bodies, our dead bodies. This isn't some special power that the priest or bishop has themselves, but rather a special grace given by God for his family. The power to forgive sins still rests with God, and our leaders are merely exercising that power, amplifying it, distributing it by God's own clear declaration. 
For those of you who have come from other faith traditions, this is often a stumbling block. But we see here in our gospel reading and in the passages from Acts that this has a firm biblical basis. We also hear from James in his epistle. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. And beyond the Bible, there's plenty of other evidence that the early church participated in this healing sacrament. From the Didache, a type of service book, likely written before John's gospel that we read today, says, confess your sins in church and do not go up to your prayer with an evil conscience. This is the way of life. On the Lord's day, gather together, break bread and give thanks after confessing your transgressions so that your sacrifice may be pure. Origen, around AD 244, in one of his homilies said, in addition to these kinds of forgivenesses of sins, albeit hard and laborious, the remission of sins through penance, when he, the sinner, does not shrink from declaring his sin to a priest of the Lord and from seeking medicine. In this way is fulfilled that too, which the apostle James says, if then there is anyone sick, let him call the presbyters of the church and let them impose hands upon him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick man. And if he be in sins, they shall be forgiven him. And just one more from the plethora of early sources I could cite for you. From St. Athanasius in the early fourth century. Just as a man is enlightened by the Holy Spirit when he is baptized by a priest, so he who confesses his sins with a repentant heart obtains their remission from the priest. So, here, just a week after we're coming down from the spiritual heights of Easter Sunday and the resurrection of our Lord, we're called to reflect on repentance and forgiveness. Why, you may wonder, do we seem to be right back to some sort of Lenten discipline, pondering our sins rather than just rejoicing in the return of the Lord, which, by the way, we also must do? Well, our Christian life is a process, a journey, on a narrow road. We cannot run forward, backwards, up, down, or sideways. We have to stay on that narrow road, the inner way that leads to life. And if you're anything like me, the release and relaxation of the Easter season is an opportunity to start running off the rails again. And we cannot do that. We need to stay on the path that hopefully our Lenten journey put us on. Nevertheless, God reminds us that he loves us. He forgives us. He wants to be with us. It was the very first thing he did after he was resurrected. God does not hate or forsake for us for our sins forever. All we need to do is turn around again to him and be prepared to confess our sins to our fellow Christians and to him to receive forgiveness and the complete remission of those sins from God through our loving leaders. Through this act, the sins are gone. They simply don't exist anymore. It's what remittance means. Forget them. They're gone. Keep moving towards God. You're alive again. Praise be to God. And yet, although we do believe in sacramental confession, we also believe in the priesthood of all believers. And each of us must also participate daily in this priestly action. Jesus says to us that we must forgive to be forgiven. That is how we participate regularly in this critical function of the body of Christ, by always forgiving others. We say it, I hope, at least daily in our recitation of the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. So not only do you have an obligation to participate in your own repentance and confession, but in the forgiveness and remission of the sins of others. Without you, 
The body of Christ cannot be whole. It cannot be healthy. It cannot be holy. So forgive 70 times 7. Change your mind. Repent. And run inside yourself to bring Christ's light to the darkest parts of your soul. And never, ever, ever forget to rejoice, my brothers and sisters. We have so great a God who, when we kill ourselves through our sins every day, still wishes to make us alive again and again and again through the graces he has given to his church and to each of us. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Christ is risen. He is risen. Talks at Advent. Homilies and reflections given at the Church of the Advent, a Western Rite Orthodox mission in Atlanta, Georgia.